one of the we best sensations I ever had was opening the the dev box that the publisher sent me with this. You mentioned bosses, right? What makes the perfect boss in in a Metroidvania? Side quest accepted. What's the crossover there, right? So when you're making mobile applications and you move that into actual game development, I'd imagine some of the software is similar, some of the approaches are similar, but what's the overall, the tangible things you could take from there and then move them into game development? The the way to approach games and to develop games even is completely mm -hmm. different from any other kind of software that I've worked before. It was a big shock and I think that I'm still too programmed to work on stuff like mobile applications, websites, and desktop applications than to make mm -hmm. games. Software in general is uh, structured chaos, and games, the, it's chaos without the, the structural part. It's I see, okay. Structure, the structure stuff in games because uh, we don't control the entire uh, flow of the game itself. It's just chaos. Game development problem for me, just chaos, pure <laughs> chaos. And we have to manage that, that chaos and try to structure it a bit. But yeah. you can only do that on a small scale, never on uh, the entire project. How do you approach playtesting? Like, do you have a Kickstarter base? Do you have, like, a wish list base? Like, how do you push your game out to larger bases of players so they can, like, test it and see what's wrong, what's broken, what needs fixed, stuff like that? In Portugal, we have a, a, re a really tight community of game developers. Okay. So... Usually the first barrier is other game developers that we know. Mm. My second phase, uh, I try to give it to people that want to play it. But usually since we are so small and really lack mm. on the marketing department, we just go crazy and reach out to influencers and YouTubers and streamers and here's the game, break it and let me know. <laughs> That's basically That's yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it also raises the question, like I've talked to developers where they say, you know, you want to push a game out in like six months. You want to push a game out in a year. Well, you've been working on yours for five years now. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think they're right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Working, uh, we didn't work for five years straight on Oyerbo. We basically have to sustain ourselves. So I've been in part-time on Oyerbo probably three years of the the five and probably yeah. full-time just for a year. Jumping way ahead before we go way back again, when the game released, kind of what was the reception on it, right? Did it go off the way you had a plan? Was it better than you had anticipated? Was there more bug fixes that needed to be done than you had kind of scheduled? Like, because I know you said, let's just get it out. What did that entail from your guys' end? With the release, we always knew that it wouldn't be the release that we fought, especially since it's a access game. is a Metroidvania game that every access and Metroidvania doesn't match too well. People don't like every access titles for obvious reasons. So we knew that the release wouldn't, uh, sales-wise, would never meet our expectations. The sales part and the business part was terrible. The reception was awesome. I'd imagine from when you started to now, that engine has evolved, it's changed. So how did you get past those hurdles where the engine slowly was building and growing and like it was doing patches and all this stuff? I'd imagine that impacts development from a technical standpoint where like it, it is changing as a moving target as you're building this game. So the first rule of any software project is never update. That's the first rule. <laughs> Pick a version and stick to it. Is but that what or, you guys Of did? course, it, no, no. We, we okay. can't do it because uh, some console platforms require you to be at least at the specific Unity version to release it. So mm -hmm. when gotcha. that time comes, we have to update. So we, I think we updated Oribo two times. 
times. And every time we did one of those updates, I think it was two weeks of work to put everything back together. So it wasn't too bad from mm -hmm. the stories I've heard. You, you had mentioned you're the software engineer behind the game. So is it like building the NPC mechanics and making them functional within the game? That's the hardest part. Like what is, what's the most difficult aspect of this game? Consistence and coherence is the most difficult thing because you want to give the play, our players uh, a particular experience. Like when I'm drawing a section of the, an area, for instance, I have very specific goals of what I want the player to feel and uh, what I want the player to discover and how he should progress that section, even though players simply disregard my intentions and do what they want. <laughs> but I, I try to have... Yeah, yeah. I tried to have some goals and uh, and points. So every section that was designed there, there are of course the those sections that are just resting areas where there is no challenge or enemies, just mm -hmm. something just to relax a bit before the next action sequence. But I always try to do to do that and try to convey uh, and play around with the mechanics that each area has. But the issue is, it's not easy to do uh, level design. I'm not, mm -hmm. like I said, I'm a software developer. Uh, what I yeah. know of level design is from what I've played, what I've read, what I've mm -hmm. listened yeah. and watched. So we basically have a strict set of rules of what we want in each section and mm -hmm. try to follow the through uh, on all sections as much as we can. Yeah. The biggest hurdle of designing any section in your book is the fact that we have a, a big one. It's the rule number one. That is, uh, the player can do this section no matter the direction that he's coming from. Yeah. So imagine uh, a simple horizontal section where you came from the left and the exit was on the right. They they can come and go from either way. And that is the difficult, the most difficult part. How do you handle stuff like pacing in a game like this, right? Because you said yourself, it's a Metroidvania, so you can go any direction you want, really. So you have that freedom of exploration in a way. And then you also, you don't want them to be like just jumping off walls for like you know two minutes or whatever it may be you want to balance when they're fighting npcs versus when they're traveling and when they are like going through map sections where there is no combat you still want it to be engaging and you still want them to be like invested in what they're doing how do you approach that uh, for every area that we do i usually do a golden path or a de mm -hmm. development path, developer path that is yeah. what i expect the normal player to do i always work around that that path mm -hmm. what i basically do after i do what i call the golden path I try to do little side paths that mm -hmm. follow the same rules where you have, for instance, a puzzle section, then a combat section, then the, a section for resting. And I try to do that in like a tree uh, where mm -hmm. everything branches off from the, what I think is going to be the, the most common way that the player will going to play. But you can literally go anywhere. Yeah. So after you collect the first uh, the first power, which is a dash, you can mm -hmm. visit all the areas of the game. With that, I mean, how do you approach the UI then in that case where you want it to be freedom they have the ability to do basically go wherever they want really but you also want to have some semblance of like direction right where they feel kind of guided if they want to be and even like with that in mind i guess one thing that jumped out for me instantly with your game was you really don't have dialogue in your game which makes localization within your ui like a game changer really so kind of walk me through those different steps as you were creating this game I honestly don't know where that decision came from I think that the main goal that you have uh, besides the, the exploring is to defeat uh, the bosses and we make sure that we have a bunch of signs pointing out not directly to where the boss is but necessarily where you should be 
or you should, where you should go to, to, to defeat the boss. You mentioned the combat with like weapons and stuff. Is bringing in weapon-based combat, I've heard kind of mixed reviews for people that said weapon-based combat versus melee combat, like one can be more difficult than the other. For you guys, which was more difficult to implement and like why was it more technically challenging for you? So we don't have combat. <laughs> we we use the classical jump on top of the head of the enemy and you yeah. will kill it. Mario style. Uh, Mario style, yeah. I like it, okay. We wanted to make them Metroidvania, but not the combat focused Metroidvania. I was just gonna say, you mentioned Ori. I think what made that game, what sold it, was just the sound design in it, the music in it. Like, people yeah. loved that so much. Looking at yeah. your game, I know sound design and music can be a challenge in its own right to implement it into a game, to match it up. And for obviously for some games, it's more integral to how you play than to others. For you, was that like something that really impacted the choices you were making? Unfortunately, Oriball's entire sound design was made after the game, after the, the mechanics and the areas are already done. Because our sound engineer prefers to have uh, something to envision and uh, punch himself to and then mm. produce the sound. You mentioned bosses, right? What makes the perfect boss in, in a Metroidvania? I know that bosses are the, the thing that makes or breaks sometimes games, but I, I think mm. bosses are, are pretty much irrelevant in the Metroidvania because what I, I expect from a Metroidvania game is exploration. Although not the same thing. It's like when you play Zelda. You play Zelda not because the dungeons necessary. You play it because you want to enjoy the world. And yeah. for me, playing Metroidvania is exactly the same. We went to check out the world, see what we have to uncover, found mm-hmm. its secrets. And that's what you want. The bosses are basically something that you have to prove to the game developer that you are ready for the next thing. When we design the bosses, we take the usual rules in consideration that we have basically two means of designing a boss. Either we design the boss of the area before we design the enemies or yeah. the other way around. So if we design the boss first, the enemies of the area will be basically remove the the boss mechanics and implement them uniquely for an enemy. If we implement the enemies first, the boss will be just a collection of all those mechanics presented to the player. You know, with this game, we've talked a lot about the design on it. We've talked about some of the different elements within it. Just talk to me about the game itself, right? The game world, the character, um, the gameplay mechanics, things like that. Just dive into that a little bit for me. When, when you start the game, you are in a spacecraft that where no human is to be seen. But if you mm-hmm. explore enough, you, you will find out where they are. And there is a conflict of powers inside the spacecraft. Basically, without spoiling too much, is basically that we have a, a conflict inside there or as a a tragic story. That's pretty much it. Story-wise, it's a very simple, nothing, nothing too too crazy. We develop a thing that we call the, the story vlogs, which are basically fragments of the story that are presented via like a comic strip, animated comic strip that are presented to the player. The reviews that we have, design-wise and visual-wise, and even the environment and the themes of each area was was being positive from our player. So at least that's awesome. We have I mean, that. Between developers and content creators, right? Content creators, a lot of content creators, they'll say never read your comment section, you know, just because there's only hurt feelings in there, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to go down that road. So it's like that is a standing, like you know, reasoning base for a lot of content creators. They're like, I'm not even going to think about it. But for developers, when you're creating a project, you're right. It's like there can be negative feedback, but a lot of times the negative feedback or like you know people that are saying things that could be 
hurtful. There might be like some nuggets of truth in there. Or there might be something you could take away from it. It's a harder balance to like approach because obviously it's not the most healthy thing to like just dive down these rabbit holes and then all of a sudden you're like, you know, you're crying in a corner. You're like, oh, this is terrible. You don't want to do that. But like at the same time, you do want to have that feedback. So like it's that weird dynamic where you do need to read all that stuff and like look at it. But you also need to take it with a grain of salt where like maybe they're right, but then also like maybe they're just way off base. So it's a completely different world, especially for me as as somebody who's more on the content creation side of it. So your game releases is released to Steam right now. From what I saw, it's ported to a couple different things already, right? I mean, it's it's on Switch at this point, correct? Or it's going no, to Switch? It, is that what it, it is? It runs. It runs on Switch. See, uh, yeah. We actually do all the performance tests on mm-hmm. the on the Switch. Yeah. So it will be there on Switch. It will be on the Xbox too. As an Xbox game, you need to go through an approval status. They give you the dev kit yeah. so you can so you can port it. But for your game and for other indie games, because I see indie games that come up on Game Pass, and always in the back of my mind, I wonder how how did they get there? Like how did how does that process go? And I'm pretty sure from the research that I've done that Xbox needs to come to you, and then they offer you a deal through Game Pass. For you specifically, as somebody who's gone through the process of getting your game on xbox do you have any knowledge on that like on how that works on how that breaks down when you're trying to approach something like that so i can tell you what what is online or what is public so you can pitch it the most common thing that happens is actually the microsoft people reach out with a deal i always wondered the deals they give developers for something like game pass right because they're just giving you a flat out deal for it they're not you're not getting a cut of like how many downloads they get or something like that that's not how that works so i always wondered how lucrative that actually is for a developer and how how fair that split line is, like how much revenue Xbox is making versus how much revenue the developers make. What I'm aware of is that they give you a fixed amount, like you said, and see if you, in X years, you think you can do that amount of sales. But mm-hmm. for instance, if it's a game like Stellar Interface, if they offer me any valve, basically, I probably mm-hmm. would put the game on Game Pass just for the, the exposure that it has. Yeah, with Steam and with like porting your game to base Xbox. I mean, you can see where people are downloading, you can see all of those analytics i'd imagine that still crosses over with game pass like you're still able to see your analytics on your back end so even if it's not performing optimally the way you would want you can still key in on the demos that are hitting and buying your game so you can still market directly to them ultimately even outside of game pass with this surprised by the cost of the making a physical edition (laughs) oh you guys oh that's true yeah because it's switch and xbox so you guys do have a physical version don't you still on the Ah, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. That's got to that's got to feel good though, right? Yeah, yeah. One of the you best sensations I ever had was opening the the dev box that the publisher sent me with this. No, I, I get that. That's got to have a great feeling to it. Having like a physical yeah. copy of what you've created. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. But you're right. Production cost is, you know, is does definitely affect things. So It's mm. scary that the, the economics of making this is very mm. scary. <laughs> very, very, I believe it. Very, very, very. Especially nowadays. I mean, everything in that in that region is inflating. Luckily, that yeah. didn't happen when Series X and PS5 were coming out. I mean, we had shortages, but inflation wasn't quite as it's as advanced as it is now. I imagine that would have pushed back the shortages even further than the what three years or whatever it was that those things were barely on the shelves. I saw my first PS5 on the store two months ago or three months really? ago, something like that. Yeah. I mean, for I me, it was much to the stars. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, fair. But even so, it was this year that I saw the first mm. PS5 on the set. On set. 
I saw a Series X and a PS5 on a shelf in a store in late 2022. And I remember when I saw it, I like stopped and I was like, whoa, they're actually in stock now. This is crazy. Like, because before, I mean, they were like mythical. You couldn't find them anywhere, you know? You'd be in like waiting queues trying to get these things. And like, I just remember spamming the button trying to buy it. And like, it would be like loading. You'd be like, come on, fucking load. And then it would like, you know, sold out. They're gone. I'm like, son of a. So, you know, it's like, they just couldn't make them fast enough and people were just buying them up. It also kind of hurt it that people were like buying like 50 of them at a time and then just like selling them for insane prices online. So that didn't help either. You're on the technical side of it. When you're creating a console, I'd imagine you have like a specific backlog of of hardware, right, to create these things. Maybe they didn't account for how popular it was going to be, but I know it's extremely technical to make something like this. You can't just whip them out like it's nothing. But wouldn't you end anticipate like having that level of demand where you would create enough of them to be able to supply that and then cushion you so you can keep making them moving forward like that never made sense to me the supply would just not meet the demand in that drastic of a fashion for both i mean for xbox and playstation like neither of them were ready and it was intensely it was just insanely obvious that neither of them were ready for their launch if you, if you uh, it, that, that's not nothing to do what I, what i do just yeah, but I I, I studied the, why why did that happen and mm-hmm. uh, it's basically I can be wrong by the way yeah but it's basically because nowadays for instance if you want to build a car yeah. you you have like the parts for the next day mm-hmm. and everything else for the day after that they are in shipment okay so if you disrupt that which what happened with COVID right you basically only have parts for one day and that is true for for every piece of everything that is industrialized nowadays everything that you need you only have exactly the stuff that you need to work today but after that you don't have any any parts so if there is some sort of supply chain disruption everything shuts down yeah. and what happened with COVID was exactly that the raw materials yep, we, we couldn't collect them down. so everything shut down and I think there is a, a lot of people that take, took, took advantage of this mm-hmm. I'm sure I I'm sure that, that there were a lot more PlayStations and Xboxes and NVIDIA cards and whatever and CPUs mm-hmm. that they was they were telling us that they have I'm pretty sure of that I think a lot of I mean the supply chains got interrupted but more than that even like the workforce creating like chips and stuff when everybody's staying at home you can't have people to even go make the chips let alone import them to the countries that need to build the consoles so all of a sudden it's an extreme supply and demand issue because you're not even making them to the point where you can ship them so it was it was a wild few years it was a wild few years, yeah. man. But circling all the way back to your game, right? Your game released in early access. So what is yeah. the roadmap moving forward, right? What is November look like? What's December look like? And even going into 2024, like what, what is that roadmap for you? The roadmap that we really, really, really want is working on our west area, area 5, which is the, really the control area. And that should end if everything goes well in January. Mm-hmm. In February or something, February or March, the console release. While I have you on call, I want to ask you this, because you're a software engineer, right? I mean, you do a lot of that stuff. So, all this AI stuff that's coming out right now, right? And I've been hearing a yeah. lot of people saying you can use AI to do coding, to do back-end work, all that sort of thing nowadays. Like, it can write its own. And, like, I'm hearing people talk about, like, you know, maybe one day AI can, like, just create their own games. Like, we don't even need developers anymore. And you as a software engineer, 
engineer. I mean, you know this stuff better than anybody. So what are your thoughts on that? I would love to have that right now. Yeah. I couldn't make a single line of code. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. perfect. I think that personally, I won't live enough to see that happen. Mm. AI can probably get uh, rid of a bunch of, let's say, low-end jobs, basically the grunt work that we have to do every day. And yeah. in some way, tools like uh, like Copilot and even the software that we use to produce software already does that. Mm. I have a bunch of software that just I need to I, I input what I'm trying to do and it already fills a bunch of stuff for me. And I need full replacing uh, software engineering architects, the, the entire spectrum of development and application aside and a website where you need to do a database, you need to do a front end, you need to do the back end. Yeah. I don't think that I will be enough to see that. I've tried, I've tried a bunch of, of those and I, I can't see it, but it's a possibility because if you ask me about uh, something like the ChatGPT three years ago, I said, you are mad. That's ne never going to happen two years. It's impressive, years, yeah, so what it can do. Technology yeah. It's fun because of this, because we never know when the next mm -hmm. breakthrough will come. So, hey, 20 years ago, awesome. I mean, iPhone was crazy. Nowadays, look where we are, right? Yeah. So, as a software engineer, right, I hear all this doomsday stuff. AI is going to take over humanity and end the world. What do you think? <laughs> I, I also love sci fi and a, yeah. a good conspiracy theory. From what I know about the systems that are being built, uh, no, mm -hmm. we, are, yeah. we are okay. But again, technology changes. We don't right. not know what they are right now. Never. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's just what I say, hysteria, pure hysteria. But I think that happens on every major breakthrough. There's a cool story so I saw cool. where it's like when radio first came out, right? When FM radio came out and people were saying it was taking people's souls or whatever and like you know it was this like evil thing and it's looking back on that to looking at ai now i guess we really haven't changed too much in like how we approach yeah. technology right <laughs>